You're listening to Plenary Session. On today's bonus episode of Plenary Session, you're going to listen to a lecture that I gave recently. Grand rounds to the bioethics group here. This is the Center for Ethics run by Dr. Toll. And the lecture I gave was on conflict of interest in biomedicine with a particular focus on oncology. And you don't need to look further than the New York Times over the last few months to see just how timely this topic is. And in what follows, you will hear almost verbatim the lecture that was given. So stay tuned. One quick disclaimer. Of course, during this lecture, I refer to an article that appeared in the New York Times contrasting financial conflict of interest with the desire for fame. And then I reference an article that came out in 1962 about smoking and the other risk factor of risky behavior. Of course, that article I have fictionalized. That's the exact same article where I've just changed the words a little bit. But the purpose of that is to show you that the structure is undermining the very structure of the article. So keep that in mind as you listen in. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us, patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose, and supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. So uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm gonna talk a little bit about conflict of interest. I'm an oncologist here. And uh, some of you may know, but if you read the New York Times for the last few months, this has become a very hot topic in my field. So I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, In terms of my disclosure, I am the author of this book, which is why I'm fabulously wealthy. Uh, (laughs) Although, one one keeps hoping Um, and My research, uh, we have a large project on reversal that's funded by the Lauren John Arnold Foundation. And in the last few months, we've launched this podcast, Plenary Session, which is on the iTunes store. And um, it's been pretty well received. We talk about a number of issues, clinical trials and oncology, and a couple things on conflict of interest. Um, And uh, when I was making the slide this morning, I noticed that we have many positive reviews and one one-star review. So I want uh, to know who did this. So, uh, I figured we might as well talk about the elephant in the room, which is this has been a very eventful summer in conflict of interest. This was the New York Times front page just a few months ago. Top cancer researcher fails to disclose corporate financial ties in major research journals. And the Times, through work through ProPublica and the Times, Charlie Ornstein and Katie Thomas, documented a series of omissions of financial disclosure information from a leading oncologist researcher, Um, even at times some statements supporting drugs that really didn't look that promising um, were made uh, omitting the fact that the company that was a manufacturer of that drug um, had provided significant financial compensation on the order of millions of dollars to the researcher. Um, This I think has really quite brought this issue back. Um, It's an issue that I think we forget about every few years, and it reminds us uh, when they're one of these major uh, lapses of disclosure. Just a few days later, Top Sloan Kettering Doctor resigns after failing to disclose industry ties. Uh, the authors of this New York Times series were able to obtain 
private emails that were sent internally, recorded conversations from meetings where they could see major turmoil in the cancer center about how to deal with these lapses. And ultimately, it led to this top researcher being forced out. But don't feel too bad because the punishment um, uh, is, is really largely over as just this week it was announced that um, Dr. Baselga will be joining AstraZeneca as a lead position as head of R&D in oncology, um, so which is a very coveted position, I think, in the industry uh, for a major pharmaceutical company. Um, and just to put it in perspective, uh, this is one estimate of the amount of compensation someone in a position like this might uh, receive. This is from another person um, who has not been implicated in any conflict of interest issues, but who did make the jump from a major academic medical center to a major pharmaceutical company. And this person's annual compensation is estimated to be between five to six million dollars, which is probably the level of compensation that one might expect at this level. So, you know, if you ask me, it seems like not um, much of a punishment when you are forced to switch jobs and receive maybe four times the pay. Uh, that's, um, you know, and, that, and, and I think, but that is actually sort of emblematic of our attitudes on conflict of interest. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about how we really don't take it seriously at all. And I think we just pay lip service to it. Some of the few things we do to deal with it, disclosure, uh, we only deal with it in a token way. We don't really take it seriously. I hope to convince you of that. I think even people who do speak clearly that conflict of interest is something we need to take seriously can severely undermine the cause. And they can undermine it in ways that are very subtle uh, and, and even perhaps unintentional, but they really undermine what we, what we need to work on. And this is an example of that. This is Aaron Carroll, whom I, who's a columnist for the New York Times Upshot, whom I like a great deal, and he's a researcher at Indiana University. And he wrote this article in the New York Times that came out just in the last couple weeks in the wake of mounting sort of turmoil from Sloan Kettering. It's called Congratulations on the Promotion, But Did Science Get a Demotion? And here's the subtitle. The incentives of grant funding and career advancement, even the potential for fame, can influence researchers. Okay, fame. I guess the first thing that strikes me is that, you know, in all honesty, um, there are very few, I think, people who devote their careers to, say, academic oncology who really crave broad fame. I think the most they crave is the subtle recognition at a conference that they are known for that particular cancer type, but that's hardly really the lust for fame, I think. Um, this is how the article begins. And I want to show you this because I think this article is severely undermining the financial conflict of interest challenge. A number of recent news articles have brought renewed attention to financial conflicts of interest in medical science. Physicians and medical administrators have financial links to companies that went undeclared to journals, even when they were writing on topics in which they clearly had monetary interests. So that's the problem. Most agree such lapses damages the medical and scientific community. Most. Uh, but our focus on financial conflicts should not lead us to ignore other conflicts that may be equally or even more important. Such biases need not be explicit like fraud. Quote, I believe a more worrisome source of research bias derives from the researchers seeking to fund and publish their work and advance their careers, said Dr. Flyer, a former dean of Harvard Medical School, who's written on this topic. How might grant funding and career advancement, even the potential for fame, be biasing researchers? How might the desire to protect reputations affect the willingness to accept new information that reverses prior findings? 
Okay? When you read that, it seems reasonable. They've, this author has acknowledged this is a problem, but what about all these other concerns out there? Okay? Now imagine it is 1962. We have identified smoking as a potent carcinogen. Um, we are trying to make just the first efforts in curbing smoking, smoking as a carcinogen. Imagine this was the article you read in the New York Times. A number of recent news articles have brought renewed attention to cigarette smoking as a risk factor for lung cancer. Many teenagers are smoking and rates of lung cancer are on the rise, concedes the problem. Most agree that smoking is a risk factor for cancer, but our focus on smoking should not lead us to ignore other conflicts, that may, other risk factors that may be equally or even more important. Such risks need not be explicit, like craving fame. Quote, I believe a more worrisome source of human harm derives from teenagers performing risky behaviors to get attention, said Dr. So-and-so, former dean of Venerable Institution. How might seeking fame through risk-taking be harming teenagers? How might the desire to gain attention affect the willingness to take part in risky behaviors? You read this article in 1963, and it would be abundantly clear that the article is undermining the effort to curtail cigarette smoking. And I think that is exactly what's going on here. Why do I think the analogy is apt? There are many risk factors for cancer, just as there are many potential biases that may skew the dissemination and reporting of clinical trials. Smoking is a risk factor for cancer with a very powerful odds ratio, a strong relationship, a consistent relationship shown in many, many studies, a relationship that's been studied empirically, and it's modifiable. You can have policies to curb cigarette smoking. Similarly, financial conflicts where university employees receive significant financial reimbursement or payments from the industry is a clear, consistent risk factor with distortion in outcomes or positive clinical trials. It is consistent. It has a measurable odds ratio. It's been studied. And it is modifiable. If we wanted, we could actually eliminate or curb these conflicts. So it is a known bias. Are there other potential biases out there, like the desire for fame? One of the criticisms I have of this claim is that there is no empirical study of that. I could tell you, for instance, that industry-sponsored studies are 3.2 times as likely an odds ratio to have positive findings in non-industry-sponsored. What is the odds ratio that, a, that authors who crave fame were more likely to report positive findings? There's no literature on that. It's not been studied. How will you study it? How will you measure it? How will you quantify it? How will you measure the outcome? This, is not, this work has not even been done. The authors here want to convince you that this other thing is something that's so problematic, they've not done the basic studies to establish that problem. Whereas in this field, conflict of interest, we've done hundreds of studies to show this link consistently. Similarly, smoking. In the 1960s, the link was clear, modifiable, known. And yet, imagine an article that says, well, we need to curb their risk-taking behaviors, which is something that's kind of elusive, hard to wrap your hand around, hard to really change. So I think. Dr. Carroll actually did a disservice by writing this article, and the timing is very poor um, in the wake of this financial conflict um, juggernaut of articles in the New York Times. Oh, I, I have fictionalized this article. <laughs> oh, I should have told you that. Uh, all I've done here in the red, I've just changed the, the language to my smoking analogy. This article never took place, the smoking analogy. What, I, what I'm doing here is I'm just trying to say the structure of his article is undermining. He's not even aware of it, and he would be aware of it if he realized that 2018 and conflict of interest is 1962 in smoking. We have done nothing about it. We've allowed it to continue. It's a clearly proven bias and we don't want to tackle it. Just as in 1962, they didn't want to do anything about smoking. You could smoke wherever you wanted. You could encourage smoking. Um, and now look where we are now on smoking. And I can imagine where we will be in conflict of interest in 40 years. 
honest services fraud. I think the same relationships we're tolerant of in biomedicine are incredibly problematic elsewhere. And this is one example of an actual category of fraud, honest services fraud, um, that has led to the prosecution of politicians. This is a true story that was featured in the New Yorker magazine a few years ago. It talked about a congressperson who worked in the New York State Assembly named Sheldon Silver. Uh, he was a speaker of the House of the New York State Assembly. And this is a job that's not a full-time job. You're allowed to have another job. Uh, it's one of these, you know, citizen um, congresspeople jobs. So his other job was he, he worked for a law firm. He was a lawyer. So Preet Bharara, the, who was fired by President Trump, who was the Southern District Attorney of New York, he investigated Sheldon Silver and actually convicted him and put him in prison for this charge. Here's what he discovered. Mr. Silver was receiving sizable payments on the orders of millions of dollars from a law firm in his, in his other job. So they were paying him lots of money. They also noticed that in his capacity as Speaker of the House, he had access to public funds to fund specifically mesothelioma research. Mesothelioma linked to asbestos, you know, it's something that the New York State said, we want to put special funds and fund this kind of research. And they noticed that in his capacity as Speaker of the House, he had decided that this one doctor at Columbia University will get a large amount of that funding. And then it turns out this one doctor sees mesothelioma patients and he was referring most, many of his patients to that law firm to sue because they had been exposed to asbestos. This is a very lucrative litigation. You know, you, you have a mesothelioma patient, they could sue a prior employer that they wrongfully were exposed to asbestos. And he was referring all of his patients to one law firm. It just happened to be the law firm that was paying the congressperson handsomely. So Preet Bharara connects this, and he argues, the congressperson has a fiduciary duty to the public to act always and only in the public's best interest. And one wonders, how is that possible when he's entered into this circular relationship where financial funds are flowing? This money is going to this doctor, the doctor strangely is giving money to the law firm, the law firm's giving him sizable payments. And he argued that this is a violation of the public trust and he was actually pro successfully prosecuted. What I wanna point out is this exact relationship occurs all the time in medicine, but we don't think it's problematic. Okay, so I'm gonna first try to show you the scope of the problem and then I'll come back to this analogy. A few years ago, these authors, led by Deborah Marshall and colleagues, published in the JNCI, Distribution and Pattern of the Industry-Related Payments to Oncologists. So one of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act was the Sunshine Clause, which has allowed us to have the disclosure of payments um, with some caveats. Payments from drug and device companies that sell at least one product on the US market to a doctor who bills CMS, so an MD or a DO, must be listed in the database. So what are the, 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 the things here? One, if you're a company that, doesn't, that has not yet sold any products on the US market, you don't have to list your, your payments. Okay, so that's one problem. So, some of these, so we don't know that. Two, they only have to list it to doctors initially, and now it'll be you know, nurse practitioners and nurses in the next stage, but they're not listing it to health economists, lawyers, regulatory um, lawyers, PhDs only health policy people. So there's still this huge amount of, you know, we just don't know what the disclosure looks like. So in the wake of this Affordable Care Act law, these authors did the first study of, just to quantify, what is the scope of payments to doctors? Here's what they found. If you look at 15,000 medical oncologists, 5,000 radonc doctors, 2,000 surgical oncologists, roughly the average per physician value of a general payment was $600 to an oncologist, 120 to a radiation oncologist, 250 to a surgical oncologist. Um, 
I think that compared to their annual salaries, it's likely a very modest amount. And what does this reflect? Probably they went to a meeting or had some meals. They went to a dinner where they learned about some drug product and they had a free meal, something like that. That's probably the bulk of this. But it's what I want to show you here. This is the average doctor in all of America. Now let's look at the people who really matter, I think. And this is a box and whisker plot showing that even though the average is quite low, there's some people up here, the 75th percentile, who's receiving quite a bit of money. Okay, I'm gonna come back to that. That's my backdrop. So that's the baseline amount of like average amount of um, conflict of interest probably out there. Patient advocacy groups. Um, I've been pretty critical that many of these patient advocacy groups are perhaps knowingly or unknowingly really working as pharmaceutical advocacy groups. They, they don't realize that they're being hijacked. We did this project where we looked at um, self-reported funding of pe cancer patient advocacy groups. We picked 68 groups that were recommended by the NCCN, which is one of our um, premier cancer organizations. And we found that just through self-disclosure, 51 out of those 68 groups disclosed some corporate sponsorship, and the median number of corporate sponsors was seven in this, in this data set. Um, that's just a sizable amount of cancer patient advocacy groups that receive, and, and of their own disclosure, significant you know, payments from the, from the industry. Why is this problematic? Because articles like this, fewer over drug prices puts patient advocacy groups in a bind. This is by Katie Thomas as well. Um, patient advocacy groups need to advocate for what's best for their constituency. And one of those things is lower prices and more affordable drugs. And yet we consistently see silence from many of these groups. And one wonders if that is in part due to the fact they're receiving significant funding from the industry. It buy, it's buying their silence or putting them in a great tension, deciding whether or not it's worth it to potentially bite the hand that feeds you. Zeke Emanuel, this is an article that appeared in USA Today, patient groups funded by drug makers are largely mum about high drug prices. Um, that might be okay if we weren't at a time where the crushing cost of pharmaceutical drug pricing is affecting many, many patients and all of society through higher, premium, higher premiums and, and patients through co-pays. Um, and yet these groups that are supposed to be speaking out on behalf of patients are silent on this issue. So I think that, you know, biases can bias you towards saying something that may be inappropriate, but also staying quiet when you need to be really an activist. Um, I'm also always shocked by patient advocacy groups that they almost invariably call for the approval of drugs on less and less evidence. And at some point, uh, they call for the approval of drugs based on evidence that's so flimsy, um, you don't even know if the drug is really in the best interest of those patients. Uh, why do you see that? One wonders if it's the fact that they are so heavily funded by the entity that benefits tremendously from the approval of those drugs. Okay, I showed you the average doctor. The average doctor to me is not really the key problem. I mean, it concerns me that so much of medical education, the average doctor is through these corporate funded venues. But what concerns me even more are the experts. Because the experts in oncology have tremendous power. They write the guidelines that determine how care is given. And in oncology, even though we like to think we have lots of good, well-done studies, there are many, many decisions that involve judgment, that are gray zone decisions. And we all invariably have to trust the experts' interpretation of that gray evidence. So they really are making calls in a gray zone. They are a bit like a judge. 
This is what Aaron Mitchell, Ethan Bosch, and Stacey Dusitzina found when they looked at the authors of the NCCN guidelines. They found of authors from a sample of the guidelines, 84% of these authors received payments from the industry. And the mean per author was $10,000, which a range of zero to $107,000. The number of companies was four, and the mean value of payments from a single company to a single author was about $3,000. This is personal payments to the doctor's bank account. Um, now, remember, contrast this with the $600 of the sort of the average doctor in, in, in North America. Um, we're getting higher. And I think we're getting where I don't think anyone can deny that that is a handsome amount of money to receive. Um, and here's what's really problematic. Medicare has to pay for every drug that the FDA approves for cancer, but they also have to pay for one of several compendia drug inclusions. So for instance, if this NCCN guidelines body recommends a drug for an off-label purpose, but gives it a st high stamp of approval, Medicare by law has to pay for that drug reimbursement without negotiating the price. So these, the people making that judgment, whether or not a drug should be paid for through federal taxpayer money for an off-label indication, are heavily conflicted with the industry, the manufacturers of those drug products. I think it's a deeply problematic relationship and emblematic of that circle I showed you for the congressperson. Let's just jump in to the ODAC room. Many FDA drug decisions are made uh, simply by the people who work at the agency. And one of the good things about the FDA is, while you work at the FDA, you are not allowed to receive money from pharmaceutical companies. So that is a clear firewall preventing anyone at the FDA from having a, another job, for instance, or payments from the industry. Okay, but we'll talk about, that's only while you work there. Um, so they approve many drugs or reject many drugs of their own decision. But some drugs are controversial. They have equivocal risks and benefits. They require opinions of more people. And for that, they hold drug advisory committee meetings. And I had the opportunity to go to many of these meetings when I lived in the DC area. And this is my version of the overhead schematic of the room. Okay, who sits in this meeting? We have the industry. They're here in the back row. Um, they have somebody I call the hired gun. This is an expert in oncology whose name is often synonymous with the field. And this person is usually hired by the industry or brought there with the industry um, or on, on behalf of the industry and delivers a short 15 minute uh, segment about this drug or this disease. Um, I will tell you 100% of the time, the industry wants that drug approved. Uh, the industry ha has never ever gone to this meeting and said we do not want you to approve our drug. Okay, they're clearly batting for the approval. The hired gun is always batting for the approval. We have a patient advocate who's a voting member of the panel. We have the panelists who currently, thankfully, although it wasn't always the case, they currently are not allowed to be receiving money from the sponsor of the drug whose product they're adjudicating. Um, that wasn't always the case. Before Peter Lurie published a paper in 2004 in JAMA, there was some percentage where they had, the people who were voting directly had conflicts. Okay, we've, we've eliminated that. There's the FDA staff. The FDA staff, I think, are the only people, are the people in the room who are really making the even-handed argument. They're not usually arguing against approval. They're putting out the strengths and weaknesses of the data. And there's the audience. And I wish to contend that everybody in this room is conflicted to some degree. One, the industry. They're all conflicted. They always want the drug approved. That's easy. Two, the patient advocate. This is a paper that appeared in Annals of Internal Medicine by Scott Graham and colleagues, and it shows that these patient representatives or consumer representatives at drug advisory meetings 
to some degree, to some percentage, have a financial conflict of interest with the industry. Let's talk about the panelists. I told you the panelists are legally not allowed to have conflict of interest. Now, those are so-called Section 208 conflicts. Those are conflicts that are created by current financial interests. There's another set of conflicts called Section 502 conflicts. These are conflicts typically created by past financial interests or personal and business relationships that could create the appearance of a conflict. So for instance, although the doctor on the panel has not received payments from AstraZeneca at the present time or in the last year or two years or three years, they previously were a consultant for AstraZeneca, and who knows, maybe in the future they may be a consultant for AstraZeneca yet again. So that is a Section 502 conflict. And I think those are also would be quite concerning. Um, for instance, I always tell people that if I knew there was a very high percentage chance that I would someday work at the University of Pittsburgh, for instance, I would probably be more guarded in my criticism of the University of Pittsburgh. If they published a paper that I didn't like, I probably wouldn't go on my podcast and talk about how bad it was. I probably would give the University of Pittsburgh a little bit of leniency. It's a human tendency. So similarly, I think Section 502 conflicts, you know, potentially could affect behavior. Um, or certainly the discussion and, 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 and tone of the room. So this is data from the FDA they published in JAM Internal Medicine. They found that about a third, 27% of meetings had at least one voting member with a Section 502 conflict. By law, they do not have to disclose these conflicts, so we can't really study them. Um, the median value of these 502 conflicts were $30,000. Uh, so these are not trivial conflicts. And the other thing is, you know, in the absence of somebody external rigorously evaluating whether or not these affect statements or decisions, um, we really have to rely on their analysis. They say it does not affect the vote, but I'm not very satisfied with the way they kind of looked at that data. Okay, the FDA. At the time of the meeting, nobody at the FDA can have a conflict with the industry, but that doesn't stop them from future employment. And so this is what Jeff Bien and I looked at. We looked at 55 medical reviewers who reviewed at the Oncology Drugs Division, and we followed them out with about 15 years of follow-up, and we asked, where did these people go? We found that about 50% of them probably remained at the FDA. They still had an HHS um, email address. Uh, they still had, uh, or had a LinkedIn page saying they worked at the FDA. Um, but about half of them left the FDA. And if you left the FDA, the number one place you went to, either to work for or consult for, was the biopharmaceutical industry. It was about 27% uh, of the, all of the reviewers and just over 50% of those who left. It is the principal destination after working at the FDA. Um, and this was replicated by Charles Piler for science in an investigation over the summer where he called it hidden conflicts and the revolving door keeps spinning. Um, I think this is problematic because if as I said, if I knew I was going to work somewhere else in the future, um, it would make me want to be more amicable in the present. I wouldn't want to push back so hard. I wouldn't want to deny an application. I would want to show that I'm open-minded and fair. And even if that meant, I think, all things being equal, erring on the side of pushing through some marginal drugs um, rather than drawing a firm line. I think that's just human nature. What about the audience? Um, we, looked at 103 public speakers at 28 oncology meetings, and we published this a few years ago in JAMA Internal Medicine. We went through the public comment. We found that about 44% of the public commenters had the cancer in question. A third received the drug in question. Notably, the people who received the drug in question, who came to the meeting, they were probably the ones who happened to do well with the drug. Because people who 
took the drug and didn't do well, unfortunately wouldn't be alive uh, to go to the meeting uh, and may not have the ability or the desire to go to the meeting. 56% represented an organization. Some were principal investigators in seminal trials. But we found that 30% voluntarily disclosed a financial disclosure, either that they received payments that facilitated them going there, or their organization was funded by that company, or something of that nature. Uh, some people say, what does it matter that the company is paying for their travel? And I would argue that even if everyone is acting honestly and telling their true feelings about the drug, the company is selecting and picking and choosing who gets to go to the microphone. They're essentially enriching the people at the microphone for people who've done well and like the product. I, I doubt they're paying for people who are critically ill or catastrophically affected by some adverse event to come to the microphone. In fact, there's no instance that I've ever seen that you know, they've ever done that. Um, I propose the solution to this is very simple. We want to hear from patients who've taken the drug. So patients on clinical trials could be, make videotape diaries in their house, and we can randomly select five of them and play them at the meeting. So you can see, what does this person say in their room, if you want the patient input in an impartial way. The hired gun. When we started investigating the hired gun, it blew me away because the amount of money, uh, general payments, this is $160,000, um, you know, we're talking many, many people over 40,000 per year, 60,000 per year, $80,000 per year in payments from consulting for the industry, which is usually their second job. Um, and there's one person who wasn't depicted here off the charts at over $2 million in payments. So these hired guns are not only noted oncologists, they're also heavily, heavily conflicted with the industry. And we found that a number of metrics went hand in hand, that people who receive more payments happen to have published more papers and have more total citations and higher age indices, the metrics of academic success. I think, um, and I've heard this from trainees, that in our field, the culture is, it has become synonymous with success to be conflicted. If you are not conflicted, you are not successful in the eyes of some people. Um, that's, I think, what's deeply corrosive about the problem, that to be successful and paths to success are defined by entering in these conflicted relationships. Okay, so this is my rough estimate, 19%, 30%, 60%, the percent of people who are conflicted at this meeting um, in some way with the manufacturer or the industry. Uh, it's non-trivial. And one wonders who is the impartial broker in the meeting? Who is the person there to say who is non-conflicted who can provide some impartiality? And I think, and the one thing I'd say is that just like that Aaron Carroll article I started this off with about the bias for fame, the so-called intellectual bias, the industry has specifically asked that some reviewers who do not have a financial conflict are removed from panels. This was covered by Jeannie Lenzer in the BMJ for an intellectual conflict of interest if they've previously spoken critically about that drug. They want to equate financial conflict with any opinion on the topic. Uh, in an effort to, I think, remove the only people in the room who might have something impartial to say. Um, and I think there's some, there's some literature around that. Okay, let's talk about Twitter. Uh, social media, I think, is this new unregulated space for how our opinions of drug products are framed, how we think about cancer drugs, and I fear it's increasingly becoming another place in which the bias and the hype of oncology have spilled out. We did this project a few years ago. We picked one oncologist without financial conflicts with the industry, which was me. Uh, and then we went outward from me a couple steps to build 642 hemonks on Twitter. There's no list of all the hemonks on Twitter. So we searched by hand. Everybody who follows me and everyone who I followed 
and we found about 100 oncologists. And then we searched everyone who they follow and, and everyone who they follow, which is 55,000 accounts, 50,000 plus accounts by hand to find another 500 oncologists. Um, we could have done more, but this took like a lot of time. And so uh, it's not, no more, it's not worth it anymore. Okay, what did we find? First thing we find is that the distinction between general payments or payments made to the doctor or research payments paid to the university, um, I tend to be far more critical of the general payments because uh, they are clearly made to the physician uh, and they are clearly been linked with bias and research payments are a thorny issue because to some degree there needs to be some money to fund some clinical trials. But general payments I think one can ask what is the value of even having them at all? Do they even need to exist? Um, the first thing we found was that their sizable amount of people on Twitter uh, percent-wise who have different levels of conflict. This is $10,000 to $50,000. We're talking about over 20%. Over $50,000. This is not trivial amounts of money. Um, and in a follow-up paper, we found we looked through a bunch of people who had tweeted at least, I think, 100 tweets and had at least a or they had at least 100 followers and tweeted 100 tweets or something like that. People who were actually active who didn't just create an account and went dormant. And we found that only two of these conflicted individuals had actually disclosed that they were conflicted in their Twitter biography or anywhere in their account that we could find. So one of our recommendations was that people should disclose that they potentially have conflict. And since we published this, I think it has improved. Um, just anecdotally, I haven't looked at it. Um, when I was talking to reporters about this, they said that if, for instance, Kim Kardashian was tweeting about a water that she liked to drink and she had received payments from the maker of that water, um, she would put hashtag sponsored in her tweet. And I thought it is a funny situation when physicians have to take ethics advice from celebrities. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but I think we probably could have, we probably should do that. Um, we also picked 100 tweets at random about conflicted drugs and 100 tweets about drugs for which there was no conflict and we, and we blindedly coded these as were they positive, neutral, or negative? And of course, as you would expect, they were more likely to be positive if a conflict existed and less likely to be negative. So the bias does translate into, I think, dispositional stances on cancer drugs um, in, in the Twitter space. We also found that you know, about half of the times they spoke about a drug, it was a drug for which they had a conflict. And somebody says, oh, it's 50-50, that's fair. I say, well, yeah, but uh, you know, they're only taking money from like seven or eight companies, and there's like 380 companies making drugs. So, and half the time they're talking about these drugs. Uh, I think it is a, a, probably a huge bias in favor of speaking about those products. So I'm not even sure the doctors believe that they are being um, utilized in this way, but, um, I think it is clear there's probably a positive feedback loop between them praising the drugs of the maker, getting more consulting opportunities, and on and on and on and on. And I'm not sure how much they realize that that's going on. Here's why I call it token disclosure. I think, you know, and you all are probably aware of this literature, that there have been some studies that suggest disclosure even backfires. If somebody who has a conflict discloses that to the audience, the audience places greater trust in that person, believing them they're honest enough to disclose. And this is a PNAS paper by Sa. Um, what I'm struck by is that the only thing we really try to do to handle this problem is ask for disclosure. And even then, I think we don't even take that seriously. So this is something we did. We went through videotapes of oral presentations at our major cancer meeting. And they all presenters have to show you a conflict of interest slide, just as I did, um, which is supposed to be disclosure, a step forward. 
I had um, Aaron Boothby, who was a great student here, um, he counted the number of words on the slide and how long it was on the screen. And he asked, how many of these slides are flashed faster than a human being can read? Okay, that's our question. So it turns out human beings, the best of us can read four words per second. And it turns out 38% of these slides are flashed faster than a human being can read. Uh, that is a token gesture. You're not even serious about showing the audience what the disclosure is. And you can't be, because no one can read it that fast. Um, you're just paying lip service to this. And, and I think that it's one thing to point that out, but I think the reason I, I find it so interesting to point out is that that is just documenting a culture that is, that is far more pervasive. And it's the same culture, for instance, why you know, an oncologist who is ousted for track record of omissions very quickly, within four months, gets one of the most coveted jobs in all of biomedicine, receiving pay that's probably you know, four times as much as prior salary. We notice one thing interesting. Between 2014 and 2015, this conference changed their policy. In 2014, they asked physicians to disclose ties that they felt were relevant to the talk. In 2015, they said, disclose any ties to for-profit entities in the biopharmaceutical space, whether or not you think it's relevant. So 2014, you think it's relevant. 2015, whether or not you think it's relevant. And what we see here is this graph jumps from this to this. There's a lot more conflicts being disclosed and a lot more flash faster than the speed of vision. What does this tell me? This tells me that in the minds of the people, they don't view this as the bulk of their relationships, they don't think have anything to do with what they're saying. I suspect that's incorrect. Um, I just want to show these two very quick. Both um, Aaron Kesselheim's group and Joe Ross's group have shown in a JAMA internal medicine paper and in a BMJ paper that there is an association between payments to physicians and the prescribing of, for instance, brand name statin medication when there are easily available generic alternatives. Um, so for people who say that, you know, yes, you can document conflict, but prove that conflict affects behavior, I think we do have at least two studies, and there are many other studies. There's some nice work that came out of, by Aaron Mitchell showing that conflict is linked to prescribing certain drugs in a class in cancer over alternative drugs that are potential rivals. Um, we have data that it affects the prescribing patterns of doctors. We also have data that it affects the editorial stances of authors when they write editorials on the topic. This is a figure that a screenshot that I prepared when I made this slide deck many years ago. And this morning, I spent all morning trying to figure out what, where, did, where did this come from? And I could not do that. I could not figure it out. So it's either rosaglitazone or it's either hormone replacement therapy, but it is a nice table two from some paper that I read a couple years ago, I can't remember, uh, that shows that if you had a conflict, you were much more rightly, likely to write a favorable editorial. Um, why do I think this matters? I think in cancer medicine, at least, many, many cancer clinical trials have elements of the design that are debatable. Who did they study? What was the comparison? How did they measure the endpoint? Many things that you could quibble with. And when people are given this information, the only opportunity they have for some impartial assessment of this trial is typically the accompanying editorial. And if the person writing the editorial is very, very critical, I suspect you can really introduce doubt in the minds of many. And if they're very, very laudatory, you can just sell this product. And I think it's problematic when those editorial authors are conflicted with the company, and it's been shown that in some cases, they clearly do write more favorably about those products. 
when I, we were doing this work and arguing about it, there were a lot of people who said, you know, um, yes, I'm conflicted, but I do that at my own peril. Um, my career is harmed, and it's people like you who uh, avoid conflict whose careers go very, very well. And I found that to be shocking because I, I, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I can promise you, you're not gonna, get, uh, not gonna get a lot of great emails if you start talking about this topic. Um, but I wanted to study whether or not does the presence of personal financial payments hinder one's career or help one's career? Can you measure that? And so we actually built a data set of authors who had published in the top major medical journals. And we tracked payments over a period of time and we tracked their career metrics of their citations, the number of papers they published, their H-index. And we asked, um, adjusting for their research payments from the industry, so let's hold constant how much money they're getting to run trials. Is there a persistent association between receiving personal payments and publishing more papers in the next period of time? And let's also adjust for the years since graduating medical school because the further you're out, perhaps your, your reputation is bigger. Let's also adjust for your entire published prior work so we're gonna hold that constant too, to adjust for the all-stars. And we find there's still a statistically significant, consistent, positive relationship between receiving personal payments from the industry and subsequent papers. I guess it seems obvious, I think, in retrospect, that this is a positive feedback loop. You take money from the industry, you get more opportunities, perhaps you're asked to write, take part in more trials or write some papers, because I, I put write in quotation marks sometimes, because there's also a fair deal, I think, of ghost authorship in this space um, that is very difficult to pin down. Um, but I do suspect it exists often when, for instance, I read a paper and it's a first author who is a doctor who's practiced for many years and they use an inverted partition survival analysis to make a cost-effectiveness uh, threshold calculation. I said, that is a very sophisticated technical analysis that this doctor who has never published a cost-effectiveness paper in 20 years of practice and who sees patients three days a week has somehow learned all of a sudden, how did this happen? <laughs> you, know, um, you, you, you often see papers like that in the literature. Um, Okay, so coming back to the end point, uh, we talked about Sheldon Silver, who ended up going to prison because he entered this relationship. Um, I think we forget uh, doctors, of course, have a fiduciary duty to do always and only what is in the patient's best interest. And I believe they likely have a broader fiduciary duty to do always and only what is in the best interest of all patients everywhere. And we have these relationships all the time. A doctor heavily uses a costly pharmaceutical drug in gray zone data. They advocate for the drug to be included in guidelines when the data is equivocal, while simultaneously receiving consulting fees from the industry. They also, the industry heavily funds patient advocacy groups, which is giving sizable grant funding to doctors or funding the CME operations that doctors receive some payments for. What's the difference between the congressperson's closed financial loop and the doctor's closed financial loop? I think philosophically there's no difference. Why do we treat this as political corruption and a crime and we treat this as something that, oh, just disclose it? I think the only difference is that the doctor is a respected person in society. We've always been respected and society gives us the benefit of the doubt. The politician is someone who everyone hates and usually for good reason, but they, we hate them and so we are happy to put them in prison when they get caught in this relationship. If people felt about doctors the way they feel about politicians, this would have been brought down 50 years ago. Um, so uh, th I think those are my thoughts on conflict of interest. I think that uh, the, the presence of the conflict is the problem. Oh, I forgot, I'll say one last thing. Um, in the latest update from Sloan Kettering, 
um, there was an internal email that was leaked uh, from Colin Begg, who is the chief of statistics. And in this email, he says um, about the two leaders of the field, the problem with you know, X and Y is that they don't really understand this issue. This is not an issue about disclosure. The conflicts themselves are problematic. That's what's untenable. And um, the New York Times reporters took that to the interim physician in chief who said, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just a statistician who doesn't see patients, which I thought was the most tone deaf and poor response to the only person who has articulated what the problem is apt. Um, so I'm happy to take any questions or talk about this issue further, but thanks for having me. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.